AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association and low-carbon corn-based ethanol. Corn ethanol is the transportation fuel solution available to combat climate change today. Learn more about the climate benefits of corn ethanol at ncga.com. When Congress passed the 2007 energy law and updated the language of the renewable fuel standard, it did so with some goals in mind. Of course, the effort sought to increase the amount of renewables in the fuel supply. But a look at the gallons the statute said should be blended reveals another goal. To increase the use of advanced biofuels like cellulosic ethanol. The way Congress saw it, conventional corn ethanol was supposed to increase to 15 billion gallons per year of annual production and plateau there. The real growth in the industry? The kind of growth that would allow for 36 billion gallons of biofuel production by 2022? was supposed to come from cellulosic biofuel. Congress was so confident in the promise of cellulosic biofuels that it projected 16 billion gallons of production within 15 years. The industry was confident too, consistently saying the real commercialization of the technology was always just about three years away. A close look at why those three years have come and gone several times over doesn't necessarily point to one smoking gun. There's the complexity. There's the cost. But make no mistake, cellulosic biofuel production isn't where many people want it to be. As the global economy seeks to lessen its carbon footprint, it's useful to take a look at the promise, the profit, and the politics of cellulosic biofuels. I'm Spencer Chase. And I'm Ben Nully. Let's explore that and more on Episode 3 of our Deep Dive on Biofuels, Three Years Away. Have you ever been captivated by potential? Maybe you were staring at an old house, thinking how much more beautiful it could be with a new kitchen backsplash. Maybe you found an old classic car that's a paint job and some WD-40 away from its former glory. Or maybe you were sitting in a nondescript room on Capitol Hill writing some legislation in or around 2007. That's where some of the potential of cellulosic biofuels were written into law. We've talked a handful of times about the renewable fuel standard and the volume requirements it set for the biofuels industry. Every year, the oil sector was supposed to blend more and more renewables into the nation's fuel supply. And every year, more and more of those gallons were supposed to be made from cellulosic biofuels. Former Growth Energy CEO Tom Bias says the fuels were key in building support for the program. As EPA started to make the rules for the RFS2, everyone was pretty excited about next generation biofuels. And there was a lot of interest in, a lot of investment in that next generation. But then again, the opposition came out of the woodwork. All right, if you can take and produce even more of this biofuels out of other materials and feedstocks, you know, you could, in, in essence, produce all our nation's fuel from, from biofuels. And so the opposition just, it got more expensive, it got more extensive. And then the interest in investing, because of all the controversy, went away. 
Throughout this episode, you're going to hear a lot of explanations and frustrations about why the industry didn't produce 10.5 billion gallons of cellulosic biofuels in 2020 like the RFS said it should. In reality, the blending targets for that year came in at about 540 million gallons, around 5% of the target the statute that created the RFS set for cellulosic production. Before we get too much into what happened and why the expected growth didn't materialize, let's make sure we know what we're talking about. Your standard corn ethanol is made from the innards of the corn kernel. But Brooke Coleman with the Advanced Biofuels Business Council says cellulosic ethanol can be made from a lot more than that. Cellulosic biofuels are made from sort of the part of the plant, whether it's a corn plant or agricultural residues or cardboard or other types of paper that are essentially not starch or fermentable sugar. And so the ethanol industry over the last 30 years is basically um, fermented alcohol. It's it, and coming from, and the plant does all the work, whether it's sugar in Brazil or whether it's the actual inside of the corn kernel in this country. Uh, we take what the plant has already done and turn it into biofuels. Cellulosic biofuels works to get um, the rest of the plant into the game, and uh, which is a tr has tremendous upside um, because of not just its carbon footprint, but also our ability to increase our, our yields and our volumes of biofuels that we can output to put, displace more petroleum with feedstocks that are currently underutilized. So from a value-added agriculture perspective, the upside is, is tremendous. You can understand why that potential is easy to fall in love with. If the nation's corn kernels can help the industry get to around 15 billion gallons per year of corn ethanol production, what kind of potential is there if you throw the whole stock and cob into the production process? And it's not just corn. In 2005, the Energy Department estimated there was about a billion tons of biomass available to be made into biofuels. Since then, a lot of the research money and energy have gone into the rest of the corn plant. But there are other feedstocks at play as well. We talked about switchgrass. I have not heard the term switchgrass used in years. You know, it was going to be the big thing, switchgrass. I was going to, we were going to just have switchgrass all over. And they were talking about producing 12, 15 tons of, of uh, material per acre from switchgrass. Well, that never happened. And I, I don't know that it ever will. That's John Doggett, the CEO of the National Corn Growers Association, who, by way of disclosure, is the sponsor of this podcast series. The idea was so mainstream at the time that President George W. Bush brought up switchgrass in his 2006 State of the Union address. We will increase our research in better, better batteries for hybrid and electric cars and in pollution-free cars that run on hydrogen. We will also fund additional research in cutting-edge methods of producing ethanol, not just from corn, but from wood chips and stalks or switchgrass. Our goal is to make this new kind of ethanol practical and competitive within six years. Corn stalks, switchgrass, fast-growing trees, it all held potential in the eyes of the 2007 beholders. But here we sit, almost 15 years later, with a limited amount of production to show for it. So, what happened? Part of this might be sort of Field of Dreams legislating, you know, if you build it, they will come. Bob Myers was at the head of EPA's Office of Air and Radiation at the time of the passage and early implementation of the Renewable Fuel Standard, 
He says there was palpable enthusiasm for cellulosic biofuels in the Bush administration, but there was also some concern. There was a general enthusiasm within parts of the administration for it, Treasury Department. I think uh, there was uh, less, I think I would say, I mean, analytically, I don't think EPA and DOE were in the same place. But when you work with an administration, you're all in one boat. Ben is going to talk to some companies that tried their hand at the technology later in this episode. But let's explore a couple of macro trends. For starters, if you and I decide to pool our resources tomorrow and start building a cellulosic biofuel facility, we're more than welcome to put shovels in the ground. But when it comes time to turn on the machines and actually start production, the EPA is going to get involved. The agency has to approve what is called the pathway. The pathway is a fancy way of stating the biofuel you're making, the way you're making it, and what you're making it out of. And Coleman says getting cellulosic pathways has been difficult to say the least. Five years ago, it was hard to find an ethanol biorefinery. So it was hard to find one of 210 or so ethanol biorefineries in this country that wasn't making a player, wasn't engaged to some degree in developing corn fiber cellulosic ethanol at their refinery. The EPA couldn't decide how to give those corn fiber registrations and stop doing it. And so we have a log jam of several dozen cellulosic ethanol registrations at EPA. A cellulosic ethanol registration is like a car registration or a sticker. They can tell you you can drive, but unless you have that sticker, you're going to get pulled over and you're going to get thrown in the, in the can, right? And so our innovators literally can't get a registration to commercially deploy in the United States because for years we haven't figured out how to provide those registrations to those innovators. And that's just a a fundamental breakdown of uh, moving those things forward, embracing the potential to innovate in this country and, and clearing bureaucracy. It is reportedly something the Biden administration is focused on, but we haven't seen the results yet and that chapter is yet to be written. The pathway issue has been a big one for biofuels producers. With applications stacking up at EPA, it's been a challenge to bring new players and new money into the market. When the administrators of the policy that drives the investment bail out under oil industry pressure, it completely destroys project development, but also chills the marketplace and encourages those who still want to invest in this technology to do it in other places like Europe, like Brazil, like China. And that's exactly what we've seen over the last 10 years. Cellulosic biofuel hasn't died. It's just, it's just been pushed out of the United States by poor policy administration. There was also the policy hurdle created during the Obama administration when the EPA stopped issuing annual blending targets. Bob Deneen was the head of the Renewable Fuels Association at the time. He says that pause was damaging to those looking to get into the industry. Cellulose was just getting started. Uh, the requirements for cellulosic ethanol and, and other advanced biofuels was, was just becoming more meaningful. And it was difficult to walk into a bank looking to get financing for a new technology in a government-driven market to begin with. But now when EPA has taken the, the rug out from underneath that program, you know, banks are looking at you pretty squirrely-eyed and saying, eh, maybe not. So the, the real impact and the legacy of those three years really was to deal a significant blow to the development of cellulose and other advanced biofuels. Policy hurdles have been plentiful, but let's not kid ourselves. 
What companies are trying to do here is hard. And even if farmers support the idea of biofuel production using biomass, that doesn't necessarily mean they're jumping at the opportunity to clean their fields, as Doggett explains. And I kept trying to explain to folks in the environmental community that, that we're talking about this waste that was on, on cornfields. Well, just take that, that stover. It's all waste product. Well, no, it isn't. Farmers leave that on the ground for a, for a reason, and that's for soil health. Uh, it's there for a reason to, to, to prevent runoff. It's there for a reason to go ahead and, and have a, a good place to, to plant seeds. It isn't a waste product. If we can get technical for a second, cellulosic biofuels do have a specific carve-out in the RFS for volume targets. But those volumes fall under an even larger umbrella category called advanced biofuels. That also includes things like biomass-based diesel, renewable natural gas, and the like. To be an advanced biofuel under the statutory definition of the RFS, its life cycle analysis must show a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions compared to its gasoline or diesel counterpart. And that's what gets some corn ethanol advocates excited. They've got in their back pocket a recent study putting corn ethanol's GHG reductions at 46%. So does that mean your standard, run-of-the-mill corn ethanol is a mere 4 percentage points of reduction away from being an advanced biofuel? Not necessarily. According to a 2020 Government Accountability Office report on the RFS, the language of the program calls out that advanced biofuels are those other than cornstarch ethanol. But Brian Jennings with the American Coalition for Ethanol argues it might be time to tweak that line of thinking. It's important for policymakers, it's important for the, the Biden EPA to turn the page on that old narrative and to really take a good hard look at what's taking place right now in the industry with the technology advancements that have, that have occurred at ethanol facilities and frankly on farms and to look at the life cycle science today and, and recognize that, you know, what was labeled as sort of just your regular old corn ethanol, nothing sexy about it back in 2006, 2007, today brings a lot of benefits to the table for the climate. Time will tell if that argument catches on. EPA Administrator Michael Regan has made plenty of comments on the issue of biofuels and will always mention the promise of advanced biofuels when he does so. The running joke of the industry may have been that commercialized cellulosic production was always about three years away. Industry veterans, however, are still holding out hope for the industry to take off. I do believe still that they can get there, uh, but it's going to take consistent policy and an EPA and administration uh, that, that wants that sector of the, of the industry to truly succeed. I do believe that if Salos is going to succeed, it's going to succeed first at existing corn ethanol plants because, you know, they know how to process uh, ethanol. And it's just a question of, you know, what the feedstock is going to be. But it still has to make good financial sense. The trick is to be able to do it at a competitive price, right? Uh, uh, fuel's a commodity. And low price is always going to win in commodity uh, economics. And conventional ethanol, we can compete. The next generation still has some work to do to be able to compete. So can it be done at existing ethanol plants? Can it be done at a competitive price? 
Ben will take a look right after this. AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association and low-carbon corn-based ethanol. Ethanol as a transportation fuel is uniquely positioned to immediately combat climate change and clear the air we all breathe. Affordable, readily available, corn-based ethanol provides consumers with a renewable low-carbon solution today and for decades to come. Learn more about the ethanol policies and priorities of NCGA at ncga.com. I remember when we started with ethanol and the petroleum industry said, oh, no, we got something better, MTBE. And they poisoned the groundwater in the East Coast and the West Coast because they followed the stupid uh, recommendation of the oil companies. And we're saying, don't let them fool us again. You just heard from then-Iowa Governor Terry Branstad at the grand opening of the world's largest cellulosic ethanol plant in Nevada, Iowa. The plant was stood up October 30, 2015 for $225 million that had a production capacity of 30 million gallons annually. It was the first major news event I covered of my career. The audio you just heard is courtesy of the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Backers and politicians hoped the plant would become the poster child success story for the once thought of three years away industry because of the economic opportunities it presented. Give us access, we'll compete with them, and we know that this is a great new product that's coming out of DuPont, and we're going to do our level best to try to let the rest of the world know. According to DuPont, the plant would be an additional revenue stream for some 500 local farmers in the area. The company said farmers could provide an annual 375,000 dry tons of corn stover needed to reach 30 million gallons of annual production capacity. Jan Connings, Global Business Director of Advanced Biofuels for DuPont at the time, said California's low-carbon fuel standard would play a huge role and the plant would provide added value to Iowa's agricultural industry. It's good news for Iowa that this gets exported uh, from the state. You know, this is an additional product of agriculture that leaves the state and adds value. California has a low-carbon fuel standard, and, and that adds uh, additional value to these uh, very sustainable, you know, 90% greenhouse gas reduction. So the ethanol we produ will produce here is 90% cleaner than, uh, than fossil fuel. And the low-carbon fuel standard gives an additional value for that. So we're very pleased to be able to bring that to California and to the people that, uh, that value that property there. He also assured the public the company knew what it was doing. We have done this very many times before as DuPont, 213 years experience in innovation. We know how to bring these new plants online. At the same time, we know that there is inherently a degree of, of uncertainty in a first plant. If you start up a third, a fourth, a fifth plant, you can predict this much more carefully. We expect the first shipments to come in 2016. What we're doing now is we're sort of, if I can use the analogy of a Navy ship, if you want, we build a Navy ship, you know, build, you, you go through a lot of testing of systems and you bring one system on at a time and eventually you take the ship out for whatever they call a shakedown cruise, I think. I don't know what all happened. But if we use the ship analogy like Conning's reference, the plant never seemed to stay afloat. Two years shortly after the anniversary of its opening, DuPont announced the cellulosic plant was for sale. There were rumors it had not hit all of its production benchmarks. But Iowa Renewable Fuels Association Executive Director Monty Shaw pushed back 
saying several other factors could have contributed to the plant's sale. He says at that time, oil was expected to be over $100 a barrel and had dropped to $30 a barrel, and the dollar per gallon federal incentive for cellulosic fuels lapsed. DuPont also had recently merged with Dow AgriSciences. Well, you know, look, there were a few attempts to do commercial-scale cellulosic ethanol plants. And a couple, and, and like I said, when all that was going on, you had a robustly enforced renewable fuel standard, which was supposed to have bigger targets for cellulosic ethanol in them, and you had really expensive crude oil. Two things changed. Crude oil prices went down, and you had an administration come in that cut the cellulosic requirements. So the financial underpinnings for those things went south pretty quickly. That doesn't mean they can't turn around. You mentioned, you know, like cellulosic ethanol is three years away, five years away, and has been for a while. Well, you know, when I when I first went to work for the ethanol industry in 2000, the joke back then uh, that wasn't funny back then was, you know, corn-based ethanol is going to be p- competitive with gasoline in the next five years. And people had been saying that for 30 years. Well, guess what? Today, Corn-based ethanol is the world's cheapest source of fuel octane. That day did come. Another major factor affecting cellulosic biofuel developers is that fracking has driven down the price of oil and gasoline, which has made cellulosic ethanol less cost-competitive. Today, many policymakers no longer view energy insecurity as a pressing issue, which has reduced political support for cellulosic ethanol policies. It is also expensive to build a plant. Shaw says the cost to build a cellulosic ethanol plant per gallon is higher than it is to build a traditional ethanol plant because cellulose is harder to chemically break down. The cellulose is the material that gives plants their ability to withstand Mother Nature. It's what makes a plant stand up. It's why a tree doesn't fall over when the wind blows. So it's, it's just a tougher material to break down to get to those sugars inside to get to. Get to. So it is just a more involved process. So today, it's, it's a tougher process, and it's a more expensive process. But if you're using things like, you know, crop residues, you know, your feedstock costs can be lower. And because those crop residues would otherwise sit there and, and um, decompose, which releases carbon into the atmosphere, by the way, if you can take some of those crop residues off, convert them to cellulosic ethanol, you have a really low carbon ethanol. You're not letting them decompose and, and release in the air. And we also have, have a lot of good science that we know we need to leave some of that on the field for, you know, for the soil health to prevent wind or water erosion. So, I mean, there's pretty good science out there on how to do this, but the economics have not been there. If, if we passed something that said, hey, we need, you know, if we said, hey, we're going to use 30 billion gallons of ethanol, then you make cellulosic uh, ethanol pretty cost-effective overnight. But when you keep undermining the RFS and not implementing the more aggressive targets that Congress called for, then there, if, if, you, if you only need 14 billion gallons of ethanol, you're going to make it out of starch. It's here today. The plants are built and it's cheap. But breaking into the cellulosic industry was not just tough for DuPont. Poet Biorefining also tried to get into the industry in 2011. CEO Jeff Broin says the idea was called Project Liberty at its Emmitsburg, Iowa facility. It was a way to show America here's another great opportunity to reduce its dependence on foreign oil. Project Liberty was designed to take uh, biomass, which is uh, cellulose or biomass, uh, corn stalks in this case, and convert it into the same molecule that comes from starch, so ethanol. And uh, we did that very successfully. We produced, in fact, a lot of it. And uh, quite frankly, that whole project was based on 
some government incentives that went away. And so we weren't able to keep doing that, unfortunately. But we still uh, are doing research around cellulose, corn stalks in particular, and corn cobs. And we are a, a big believer that the largest plant-based source of energy on the planet Earth that's not being used today is cellulose and biomass. And it will eventually have to become part of the fuel supply if we're going to have a significant impact on climate change. There's simply no other way. The Department of Energy contributed $100 million in cost-shared support to help with development, design, and construction costs of the POET facility. It was supposed to have a cellulosic biofuel production capacity of 25 million gallons a year and expected to increase Iowa's economic output by $24.4 billion over two decades. The plan was to replicate the cellulosic production process at 27 of POET's conventional corn ethanol plants and license the process to other companies with an ultimate production goal of 3.5 billion gallons of cellulosic ethanol. The Emmitsburg facility eventually opened in 2014 with a production capacity of 25 million gallons a year in addition to the conventional grain ethanol already being produced at the site. Broin argues that volatility in the renewable identification numbers market for cellulosic biofuels ultimately caused the plant to be unprofitable. Under the Trump EPA, basically renewable volume obligations were set such that the RIN values went from over a dollar a gallon, where they were intended to be in the early program, and we thought long-term, to, to very low values. And that took away the incentives that were intended to drive cellulosic ethanol. And so it was unprofitable. There's simply no way for it to continue. So we lost our partner, which was the government. Uh, they decided this wasn't important anymore. And, uh, and basically we weren't able to continue, but we did successfully make cellulosic ethanol. And it was, um, it was pretty exciting. We sold quite a bit of cellulosic ethanol from the Emmitsburg facility. But when that RIN value went away, it was significantly unprofitable to operate the plant. The POET facility still produces cellulosic ethanol, but for research and development purposes. Harvard University economist Jim Stock studies RINs and had the opportunity to tour the Emmitsburg plant a few years ago. He was overall impressed with what they were doing. You know, these initial plants, you, no one expects the initial plants to be working that well. I mean, the whole point is that you're learning by doing, and then you try another plant, and then you try another plant, and eventually, after you've done a bunch of these things, you're really going to be nailing it. We've seen that in the corn kernel ethanol industry, where these plants are getting increasingly efficient and increasingly low carbon footprints and, and really improving. And, and we never had the opportunity to go down the learning curve there. I think that that's completely lies at the feet of the policy failure. Stock argues the long-term investment just wasn't there and the RFS was deeply flawed when it comes to driving second-generation biofuels. Suppose you're DuPont or suppose you're Poet DSM, or suppose you're Abengoa, and you're thinking of spending a couple hundred million dollars or more on a plant. What, what are you going to think about? Like, why would you do that, you know? And it's going to say, well, because this is a market that's going to really exist, and it's a market in which I'm going to be able, maybe not right away, get a rate of return, but eventually I'm going to really be able to bank on getting a rate of return. A rate of return just means basically money for doing that or a subsidy. Subsidies are appropriate when you have low carbon fuels. That's what like pricing carbon is all about. So it is okay to subsidize low carbon fuels. They should be subsidized. Well, the problem is that the RFS never provide a mechanism to make sure that that subsidy was really going to happen. So the subsidy is linked to the RIN value, 
rims fluctuate from like 10 cents to a dollar 60 or something. So they're all over the place. On top of that RIN value, you've got this complex layering phenomenon of, you know, the, the, D, the D hierarchy uh, for different RINs. And the D3 price also fluctuates a lot. Now go try to explain all that to a chief financial officer of a company. Stock says it's not as easy as you think. The price that you would get is highly volatile. So if you think about going to your financial chief or the CEO and saying, I want to build the next $200 million plant. And they say, well, okay, what's the subsidy? And you say, well, it could be 10 cents. It could be $4. Not really sure. Well, okay. The CFO is going to look at you and say, are you joking? So you need to have some sort of price certainty and they didn't have that price certainty. And moreover, what you have to say in honesty to the CEO is, oh, and by the way, the program might be canceled in any period of years because the petroleum industry really hates it and it's super controversial and the environmentalists don't like it either. There definitely has been challenges for Poet DSM and DuPont on producing cellulosic ethanol. DuPont eventually found a buyer for their Nevada facility. The plant was bought by a German company called Verbio in November 2018. It has repurposed the plant to produce renewable natural gas from cellulosic feedstocks. Renewable natural gas derived from biogas collected at landfills and other facilities has helped make up the difference for cellulosic biofuel production since 2014. That year, the EPA expanded the definition of cellulosic biofuel in a rule to include biogas consumed as compressed natural gas and liquefied natural gas. Shaw says he hopes to see the plant operating by the end of the year. And we're excited to see how that goes. But that doesn't mean that cellulosic ethanol can't make a comeback, but you have to have, I always tell people, the very first property of sustainability is profitability. And so, you know, the economics need to be there to drive that. Tristan Brown is an associate professor in energy resource economics at the State University of New York. He says 10 years ago, companies fell apart largely because the technology was not mature enough and were not able to achieve anything remotely close to the yields that they needed to achieve to be financially competitive. But that's changed. We've gotten to the point now where there's been a, a tremendous amount of work done on proving these technologies from a technical standpoint. And so at this point now, it's really just a question of economic feasibility. Uh, can they compete with, you know, ultimately very inexpensive petroleum? And more importantly, are the, the policies that are supposed to encourage decarbonization of the transportation sector, are they going to exist? This was something, you know, especially under the Trump administration, um, RIN prices were quite low. There was a great amount of uncertainty in the RIN markets. You had, um, you know, I'm thinking back to early 2017, for example, when uh, you had uh, Carl Ackhan was the special assistant to the president or special advisor to the president on uh, uh, regulatory matters. And he was making a lot of noises about, you know, reducing the renewable fuel standard, doing something to make blending costs go down. That really discouraged cellulosic biofuels in particular because they need that incentive more than, you know, more mature technologies. Brown says financial incentives will be critical for the future success of cellulosic biofuels. I think if we if we see this um, financial support in place that recognizes, you know, these are achieving 80, 90 percent. In some cases, they're even net negative. And they, they achieve greater than 100 percent reductions to greenhouse gas emissions. If we see the financial incentives in place that reflect that, I think we will see the industry start to grow. Because again, from a technological standpoint, they, they've matured a great deal over the last decade. 
I think more importantly, the big question is, you know, are they essential? And personally, that seems like uh, the main argument is we are not going to achieve full decarbonization of the transportation sector without using lignocellulosic biomass. Electricity is replacing light duty vehicles. It is going to be quite some time, you know, decades before it starts to replace uh, diesel fuel. And I'm not sure we're ever going to get to the point where it completely replaces jet fuel. Clearly, we've learned the cellulosic industry is a tough business to get into. But future policy changes like the LCFS or a push for the higher adoption of advanced biofuels from the Biden administration could provide more hope for the industry, or then again, maybe it will always be three years away. Watch for next week's episode as we explore the growing hype of electric vehicles and what that means for the biofuel sector in the years ahead. For Spencer Chase, I'm Ben Nully. This episode of AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association and low-carbon corn-based ethanol.